A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. While people were listening to Jesus speak, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God would appear there immediately. And so he said, a nobleman went off to a distant country to obtain the kingship for himself and then to return. He called ten of his servants and gave them ten gold coins and told them, Engage in trade with these until I return. His fellow citizens, however, despised him and sent a delegation after him to announce, We do not want this man to be our king. But when he returned after attaining the kingship, he had the servants call to whom he had given the money to learn what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Sir, your gold coin has earned ten additional ones. And he replied, Well done, good servant. You have been faithful in this very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. Then the second came and reported, your gold coin, sir, has earned five more. And to this servant, too, he said, Take charge of five cities. And the other servant came and said, Sir, here is your gold coin. I kept it stored away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a demanding man. You take up what you did not lay down and you harvest what you did not plant. And he said to him, With your own words I shall condemn you, you wicked servant. You knew I was a demanding man, taking up what I did not lay down, and harvesting what I did not plant. Why did you not put my money in a bank? Then on my return, I would have collected it with interest. And to those standing by, he said, Take the gold coin from him and give it to the servant who has ten. But they said to him, Sir, he has ten gold coins. And he replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And now, as for those enemies of mine who did not want me as their king, bring them here and slay them before me. After he had said this, he proceeded on his journey up to Jerusalem. The Gospel of the Lord. What a remarkable combination of readings that we have before us today. This haunting reading from the second book of Maccabees, and then this very, very pointed and powerful gospel reading. 
And note how both of them, in a certain way, turn on the issue of kingship and what it is to be a king. In the first reading, we have the continuation of the stories that we have been moving through this week with the king Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, that king who is seeking to impose new ways across his kingdom. And this brings him into conflict with the Israelites who, while they groan under his rule, cling to the customs, cling to the way of life that they have from their ancestors. And here again, this becomes so serious, it becomes a matter of life and death. And so we have this remarkable example of the mother. And this text from 2 Maccabees is an exceedingly important text as well with regard to devotion to the Holy Virgin Mary. In fact, it is one of the great texts that is used in preaching about and speaking about her sorrows. This mother who knows the woundedness seven times over of the loss of a son, as if seven swords pierce her heart, has long been recognized as a figure of the pain of Our Lady as she stands at the foot of the cross, her own heart trespassed by the great sword of sorrow over the suffering and death of her son by misguided earthly authority. And what do we see here but misguided earthly authority? Snatching the lives of a mother's children away from her. But this mother is remarkable not merely because of her loss, to the extent that mere is even the appropriate word here. She's remarkable not because she's lost seven sons. Many mothers have experienced tragedy. She's remarkable for the way she engages this loss. She actually prefers to lose them physically than to lose them morally, than to lose them spiritually. This flies in the face, not just of the expectation of the king, but how so much of society constructs itself. And let's be honest. One of the great areas of weakness with regard to how we Christians live our faith is the way we will often lay our faith aside for our children, either to avoid conflict with them, or we stop going to Mass because my son or my daughter has a baseball game or a softball game or a dance recital on Sunday. And under the rubric of it's my children and I want them to be happy, we lay the faith aside in its practice, fooling ourselves that it's not that big a deal. And we'll see this time and time again as families live. There's a certain disordered attachment at times to our children and to our loved ones. 
And this mother is remarkable for her detachment. Notice her words. I am not the source of your life. Notice she doesn't lead with, I'm your mother. I am not the source of your life. And she doesn't forget that. I carried you in my womb, but I'm not the one who gave you the life that you have. And she understands on some levels that those children of hers are like those ten coins that the Lord entrusts his servants with. And so she looks at these young men and she says, understand, all this king can do is destroy the life of your body. But he didn't give it to you either. And the one who gave it to you, who made the world out of nothing, can restore it to you. And in doing so, restore you to me. And so she is willing to bear the grief of this moment for the sake of a joy that is much greater that awaits her. And she is more preoccupied with the danger of the ultimate loss than the danger of this loss. And the king was not a fool. He knew exactly what he was doing. He had the mother there. And son after son, he wanted them to feel the pain that their mother would feel as they held on to their faithfulness. You don't want to hurt your mother. You don't want to let your mother down. You don't want to wound her. And to the mother, don't you want your son to be healthy, happy, and alive? Note how powerful that is. And let's be honest. That's a difficult, that's a difficult temptation to face down. This is what is absolutely remarkable here about this family. They are so convinced that there will be a day of the Lord's glory. And they are so convinced that on that day, all of this woundedness will be taken away that they can face this woundedness. How many of us could say that? Even as we say, Lord, thy kingdom come. How many of us are so convinced of the coming of the kingdom that in a moment like this, that confidence determines how we act? Note the power of this mother's words. And then finally, finally, the last, the youngest of the sons. And the king goes out of his way. Look, I'll give you lands. I'll give you authority. I'll give you wealth. And your mother will have you. What could be better than that? He goes to the mother. You've already experienced so much pain. Don't you want to? And she who did not cling for six will not cling for seven. Again, how remarkable this is. And, you know, I love the fact that she makes a show of trying to talk him out of the decision and then whispers to him to go ahead with it. 
But note how she says it. Here's where she says, remember, I'm your mother. Don't disappoint me. What a remarkable statement. Prove yourself worthy of your brothers. Prove yourself worthy of the light of glory that waits for you. And then the Lord who gave you to me in the first place will give you back to me. And no one will take you from me again. What remarkable faith that is. Small wonder then the church has long seen in her a type and anticipation of our Blessed Lady at the foot of the cross especially in that spirit of the Lord who mysteriously gave you to me, will give you back to me again. And so there's a certain, not happiness, but a joyful confidence about her in the midst of this sorrow and the midst of this affliction. But note the key here that she understands her children, her sons, are a gift that was given her. And she's not possessive of them. She's responsible for them. And so here in this last moment, when the world attempts to use the sentimental character of a mother's love against the sons, and the sentimental character of a son's love against the mother. There's something deeper here. There's an abiding confidence in those words that we said in the responsorial psalm. When your glory appears, O Lord, my joy will be full. We have this reading as our year comes to an end and we reflect in the light of the second and ultimate coming of the Lord. And note, that's the faith that we see expressed here. The Lord will come, and on that day of glory, we will be with one another again. And it's this kind of faith that proves mightier than any coercive and violent power that the world can offer. But one doesn't get to this degree of faith without working toward it. This is the fruit of the life of a family that would not lay its faith aside for lesser things as they lived. So that when a moment like this came, it's not that suddenly God gave them an infusion of grace because there was no greatness within them. Rather, God had been infusing them with grace through those years of faithful living. So that at this ultimate moment, his grace could manifest itself in the greatness of this witness. In the eyes of the world, it makes no sense. In terms of worldly calculus, this is loss and pain and nothing else. Who would do this? You know, and when we look at our own lives 
and how easily we lay our faith aside as if it's something to put down and pick up again at our leisure. It makes little sense to us, too, when that's the way we live. But there's something marvelous here to aspire to. And are all of our families called to this exceeding degree of holiness and sacrifice? No. But all of our families are called to a certain degree of holiness and sacrifice. And to give the witness, the beautiful thing here is this is not simply the witness of the individual sons, every one of whom is a martyr. And it's not simply the witness of the mother who undergoes so enormous a loss. Notice it is the witness of a family. In each case, as the son gives his life and the mother is there and the brothers are present, it is a family that gives witness in each and every case. And it's remarkable that in all of our language about the greatness and the dignity and the beauty of the family, we rarely consult this reading, which admittedly is difficult and it's not going to be on anybody's top 10 list. And yet the picture it paints of a faithful family of utterly invincible and unshakable faithfulness is remarkable and something worthy of wanting to aspire to. And it's as a companion to this that we have this sharp reading from the gospel. Because now we deal with what does it mean to have an expectation that the kingdom will come? Note how St. Luke very carefully expresses this. Jesus is moving to Jerusalem and people are listening to him. And because he's going to Jerusalem and people know that, they begin to think the kingdom of God is going to come right away as soon as Jesus gets there. And so Jesus speaks this parable. So he speaks this parable into the expectation that the kingdom is going to come right away. To those who are excited by it, and notice that the parable begins with, oh, it's not right away. A nobleman went off on a journey to acquire the kingship. Here he is speaking of himself and what he will pass through. And before he goes, he calls together, and this is an odd detail in the reading, 10 servants, it says, and he distributes 10 gold coins, assuming one to each servant. And he says, make use of this while I am away, and I will come back looking for an accounting. And so note, Jesus is telling a parable that says, I am going away and it will be a while. And while I am away, you need to do something with what I am giving you. I'm not giving this to you to spend on yourself. I'm giving it to you to put to work for me. 
And then as he goes away, there is word from his fellow citizens, they don't want this guy to be their king. And when the Lord puts that on the table, he's also naming that rebellious character of the human heart. That rebellious character of broader society and the broader world. I want to choose a different king. Jesus is too demanding. The gospel is too challenging. The world says this all the time. We live in a world where Christians are more and more encouraged to keep their faith inside their buildings and to leave it there when they step outside the building. I don't know what that means for us because we're not in a building. You know, but, but that attitude that faith is private, leave it at home, leave it in church, but it doesn't belong in public discourse. It doesn't belong. We don't want that king. We want somebody else. And then we believers, again, with the ways we lay our faith aside, quietly say that prayer. I want a different king. I want a different king. I don't feel like following the gospel today. And so you have a world that doesn't want to receive the king, and you have servants who've been entrusted with wealth by the king to do something with it. And then the nobleman receives kingship. So right away, those who said we want a different king are overruled. Because, again, the kingdom of God is not a matter of popular vote. And he returns. And the first thing he does, the first thing he's interested in, is not everybody else. He's interested in those servants. And this is the strange part. Remember St. Luke said he called ten servants and gave out ten coins? You notice in the gospel reading, we only see the accounting of three of them. What about the other seven? You know, that's an interesting question, this, this odd detail. Seven are ten of them are entrusted with wealth, and then we see the result of only three. One comes, and he's earned ten coins. A second comes, and he's earned five. And finally, there's the one who didn't do anything with what he was given because he was afraid. And note the different reactions. Those who did something are rewarded. The one who didn't try receives nothing. And what he has is lost. And so the Lord is saying, you guys who are waiting for the kingdom of God got to understand when it comes, when it comes, I'm going to be looking for something from you. What have you done with what I have given you? And if the answer is nothing, don't expect that you come out of this on the right side of things. And so here the Lord very clearly says, I have real expectations. 
And then in one of the most chilling statements in all of Scripture, after the accounting is given, bring those who didn't want me to be their king inside and slay them in my presence. So much for that notion that the New Testament is all love and the, the Old Testament is all violence. Note how strong that is. Ultimately, rejection of the Lord puts us to death. Ultimately, refusal of the Lord. You know, and this is not that refusal because Christians have given bad witness. This is that refusal of the stubbornness of a heart that simply will not surrender. Ultimately, ultimately, there is a consequence for that. And that a life that is lived as a continual rejection of goodness is a life that will get his prayer answered. Because the only way, the only way they don't get the, no, the, 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 they don't get the nobleman to be their king is if they're no longer alive. You know, there's only one outcome for our lives. We all come before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. There is no human being who will not. And in the end, there is an accounting for our lives. And the Lord speaks this way so that we, just rec we recognize that this is not something to take for granted, not something to take lightly but also to say our small efforts to put to use what we've been given will receive a reward that goes well beyond what our efforts can produce. You know, a guy gains 10 more coins, and what's the reward? Take charge of 10 cities. Note how abundant the reward is compared to how small the work really was. But as we said, what about the other seven? Notice how Jesus deliberately leaves that hanging. What about the rest of those guys? Well, that's us. He doesn't talk about the other seven to invite us to ask the question of, well, which one of the three am I? Which one am I? Am I the very productive servant? Am I the servant who works hard but isn't quite as productive? Am I the servant who hasn't done anything yet? Which one am I? Of those other seven, how many of them gained ten coins? How many of them gained five? How many are like the guy who kept it wrapped up in a napkin? What happened with them? The Lord leaves it open. Because the real question is, what happens with me? Because I'm one of the ten. I've been gifted with something. And so again, coming back to our first reading, note how marvelously the example of this family. In the face of a world that basically cries out to heaven and says, we want a different king than the one you want to give us. And how they, with that treasure of faith in their hearts, that mother with 
recognizing the treasure of the lives entrusted to her. Note how remarkably well they used those gifts. And then consider how abundantly great that reward in the light of glory is for them. You've gained 10 coins. Take charge of 10 cities. And in just a few minutes, we'll come forward. And even though the host that we receive is round and looks sort of like the shape of a coin, oh, it is much more than that. But note the treasure that the Lord is entrusting us with. Here is that one, the faithful son of the suffering mother who gives his life in faithfulness for us and continues to give himself, entrusting us with that coin of his presence, saying, go and put it to use so that when I come, your reward may be great. Amen.